Okay, uh, find Genesis 17. Genesis 17, God of the impossible. God of the impossible. Genesis 17, and we'll be looking tonight at the first 14 verses. Genesis 17. Got it? I still see people searching. I'll wait just a minute. I'll tell you what, while you're searching for Genesis 17, search out those cell phones and silence them. Shut them off or silence them. See, I can't tell you to cut them off because when I say turn in your Bible now, what do a lot of people do? Turn on their Bible, their Bible app on their phone. So, uh, in fact, uh, one pastor in the state of North Carolina with a very young congregation, he said, you know, I go to these uh, conferences and hear preachers talk about how good the sound of those pages turning, uh, how good that sound is. He said, I've never had that experience. He said, all of my people, he said, I don't hear the pages turn on. I see the warm glow of their screens on their face because all my people, he said, turn on their Bible. So, again, I won't say turn, turn off your phone if you have your Bible app there, but at least silence it if you would please. Okay, uh, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I, may, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham." For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house 
And he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now folks, who can argue that we do indeed serve a God of wonders? You know, even creation itself is a testimony of this, is it not? Writing in the journal Nature, Benjamin Zuckerman, a professor of astronomy at the University of California at Los Angeles, says that there's one factor contributing to Earth's ability to sustain life. And that one factor, one main factor, is the size of the largest planet in our solar system, Jupiter. Jupiter, the next neighbor to Earth after Mars, is a giant gaseous planet with a mass that is 318 times greater than that of Earth. And therefore it has a much greater gravitational force. He says it's that gravitational force that benefits planet Earth. When massive objects that could do great harm to the earth hurl through our solar system, Jupiter acts as a sort of vacuum cleaner, sucking comets and asteroids into itself or causing them to veer away from the earth. Zuckerman says, without Jupiter, earth would be a sitting duck. He says massive gaseous planets like Jupiter are actually very rare in the universe. However, we see God's design in creation. Because having a planet like Jupiter nearby may be rare, but it's not a coincidence. Folks, indeed, we serve a God of wonders. Amen? He's a God of wonders. And he's a God of the impossible. When the angel appeared to Mary and told Mary that she would conceive of the Holy Spirit, she said, how can this be? I've never been with a man. And remember what the angel ended up telling her? said, you'll conceive by the Holy Spirit. And Mary, you need to understand something that nothing is impossible With God. Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, he says that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we can even ask or think. And so we see tonight that God is a God of wonders, He's a God of the impossible. God's word can be trusted, you and I can bank on it. God is able to do what He promises that He will do. First thing I want you to notice with me tonight is God's promises to His children. God's promises to His children. Look at the first eight verses again. And I won't read them all again right now, but just keep those before you. We see here that God is appearing to Abram once again. Now, folks, if you've not been paying attention to the time markers throughout Genesis. 
and even the time markers in the life of Abram, you might think that Abram uh, had God appearing to him day after day. I mean, it's almost like every day Abram gets up in the morning and has his breakfast and there God is to give him a new vision or to sit down and talk with him again. It doesn't happen that way, does it? As I mentioned last week, we need to realize as we're reading in the book of Genesis and we turn pages and go from chapter to chapter, I mean, it might seem to us like one event is just rapid right on the heels of of the previous event, but it's not like that at all. Sometimes years, sometimes even decades go by between the events of God speaking to somebody. Where we're really going to see that again is in the life of Joseph. When we start talking about Joseph in the book of Genesis. Sold into slavery and and then goes to jail. And then the dreams that uh, his fellow prisoners have. And the interpretation and Pharaoh calling him out. I mean it just seems like boom, 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 boom. All those things happen in rapid succession. And it's not like that at all. Years and years went by. Same in this case. With Abram, there's been five divine communications over the course of 25 years. Five communications over the course of 25 years. Let's review those for a minute. What was the first time God spoke to him? Exactly, to leave Ur of the Chaldeans. And then what was the second one? Now this, this, could, this could be a trick question, but it's not a trick. But you, you're going to be tempted to think of some other event in his life. But following on the heels of what Jeremy just said, what's the second one? Think of the book of Acts and what we said about the book of Acts And comparing the book of Acts with Genesis 12. What happened? They leave Ur of the Chaldeans. And they go as far as what area? Haran. Exactly. And then while in Haran they kind of stop over there. And Abram doesn't finish the journey. And so after... Stopping over in Haran for a time, God has to renew that call to Abram again to finish the journey to the promised land. So that's the second time. Then thirdly, when Abram arrived in the land, God appeared to him and said, I'm going to give this land to your descendants. That's the third time. And then after Abram defeated the kings from the east and rescued Lot, God appeared to him and promised a son to him. And now, 13 years after the birth of Ishmael, God appears to him again. So again, we're tempted to think that Abram's life was crowded with revelations, but that's not the case. There were long periods of waiting in his life. Well, in chapter 15, God had promised Abram a son. In chapter 16, we see that when God didn't give him a son right away, what did Abram and Sarai do? They took matters into their own hands. 
Sarai gave Abram her maidservant. Abram had a son, Ishmael, by her. This was not God's plan. This was Abram and Sarai's way of trying to take matters into their own hands and rush God. And as we saw last week, we usually end up paying a huge price when we do something like that. When we don't wait on God and we come up with substitute plans of our own, we generally get in trouble. I read about a naturalist who took the cocoon of an emperor moth. And he kept this moth in his study for for months. He wanted to, to witness this emperor moth emerging from its cocoon. The cocoon was flash-shaped with with a narrow opening at the neck through which the moth would emerge. The great difference between the narrow opening and the size of the moth made the naturalist wonder how it would be possible for the insect to get out of its prison. Well, at last the day came. Uh, All morning the man watched the moth inside the cocoon struggling to get free and it seemed like it could never get past a certain point. But folks, this struggle is necessary because it's that struggle that forces the fluids of the moth's body into its wings and makes it possible for it to fly once it does emerge. Well, the naturalist was ignorant of that fact and when his patience uh, became exhausted, he decided to help things out. And so he took the point of his scissors and he carefully snipped away parts of the cocoon that seemed to be holding the moth from getting free. Well, the moth crawled out with perfect ease. And yet the wings never did expand their big beautiful rainbow colors they never did expand at all and instead of spending its life flying it only lived a few short moments crawling around and and then it died it's always a mistake to try to hurry God along whether we're talking about things in nature or whether we're talking about things in human life. And that's the mistake that Abram and Sarah had made. Well, now Ishmael is 13 years old. Now, no doubt, Abram's affections were fully set on this child. And Abram is 99 years of age. And at 99 years of age, God appears to him again. Now, as we read down through these eight verses, we see some astounding promises. How is it that Abram could bank on all of this coming true? Well, the lesson here is that the trustworthiness of God's promises is based on who God is. The trustworthiness of God's promises is based upon who God is. How does God identify himself? El Shaddai. Now this is the first time in the Bible that this name of God is given. It literally means I am the Lord God Almighty. 
It's the name of God that refers to God's omnipotence and God's sovereignty. It's the name by which the patriarchs came to know God. One commentator says it describes the God who makes things happen by means of his majestic power and might. When God later appears to Moses, you remember what he says? God says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. It's the name that is used of God some 31 times in the book of Job. When God is trying to encourage Job in those passages where he's trying to assure Job that he has all of creation in his hands and there's nothing too difficult for him and he can watch over his created order just fine without any help from Job, he identifies himself as El Shaddai. God was saying to Abram, I'm able to fulfill the awesome hopes that I have planted in your mind. You don't have to fear because of your age. You don't have to fear because of the age of your wife Sarai. You don't have to succumb to desperation and try to help me out the way you did when you took Hagar to also be your wife, everything about your life, everything about your family, everything about your future is wrapped up in this. It is wrapped up in who I am. I am El Shaddai. I ran across an exposition of these verses by Dr. Ray Pritchard. He's a pastor in the Chicago area. I've never heard this before, but supposedly there are are parts of this country where the old-timers used to have a saying. The old-timers would say, that's no hill for a stepper. That's no hill for a stepper. Have you ever heard that? That's no hill for a stepper. Really? Really? Okay. (laughs) No hill for a stepper. What's that mean? No hill is too big, right? You think it's hard to have a baby when you're 100 and your wife is 90? Abram, that's no hill for a stepper. My name is El Shaddai. I can do things that you can't even dream of. That's what God's telling him. God says, you will be a father of many nations. You will be exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. I will give you and your descendants this land. I will be your God and you will be my people. Again, how can God make promises like that to Abram? Because he's El Shaddai. He's invincible. Did kings come from Abram? Did kings come from him? Absolutely. 
Who would some of those kings be? Saul, David, Solomon, and then the king of kings and lord of lords. That's right. Kings did come from him, right? Nations did come from him. Now, I want you to understand two things today. I'm just going to point out the first one right now. Again, here it is. Don't miss it. All of God's promises to his children will be brought about because of the nature and character of God, who he is. Who he is. God promises to save you if you come to Christ. You may not understand how in the world God can place all of your sin upon Christ and he can die in your place. But he says that's exactly what happens. He will bear your sin and give you his righteousness. He will do that. Because he said he will. You may not understand how as a Christian that that God will be a shield and a tower of strength and a refuge for you. And a present help in time of trouble. But he said he would do that. He's able. Philippians 1.6 Paul says... He who hath begun a good work in you will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. Guess what? He'll do it. He's able to complete it. God finishes what he starts, right? God brings it to pass. Folks, there are so many promises in the Word of God about how he walks through life with his children He'll walk through your life with you. You can believe it because of who He is. He's the Lord God Almighty. He's El Shaddai. Let me encourage you to study some of the names of God in the Old Testament. Because every one of those names about God in the Old Testament says something about who God is, His character, and what He's able to do in your life. But folks, the fact that he is El Shaddai for his people also means what? It also means that he disciplines his children when he sees fit. Sometimes that discipline hurts, but it's for our good. He wants to make us better. Uh, He wants to mature us. He wants to make us a better servant of his. Sometimes he's, he's like a surgeon with a knife. The surgeon with the knife cuts. And it hurts. But it's for our ultimate good. But again, know this, that God is able to do everything that he says he will do. We can count on God because of who he is. And that's what he's wanting Abram to understand here. Now the second thing I want you to see is when embraced and appropriated, God's promises to his children bring forth changes. God's promises bring forth changes. There are two changes that God brings about in Abram. What was the first one? 
a new name. A new name. Abram meant what? Exalted father. Father of many. Now, don't you know that that name, do you reckon that name probably had almost become an embarrassment to Abram? Abram's a part of a culture where names really meant something. You know, today we just name our kids anything, right? We look in baby books or whatever and pick out a name. But back then, names meant something. They had significance. Can you imagine Abram dwelling in tents and a visitor comes through and says, What's your name? My name's Abram. Oh, exalted father or father of many. How many children do you have? None. Before Ishmael, none. I thought you said your name was Abram. Yeah, that's my name, Abram. That means father of many. How many children? None. Just doesn't seem to fit. Probably it, uh, it makes you wonder if it ever became an embarrassment to him. Maybe to some people, he became a laughingstock. There's that guy, Abram, father of many. He doesn't even have any sons. But look at what God does in his life now. No longer will your name be Abram. It will be Abraham. Not just exalted father of many as in many individuals. But you will be the father of nations. And so what's God doing with his name? God is intensifying his name. From many individuals to many nations. So the name Abraham makes room for Abraham to be the father of millions and millions. So again, it's, it's an intensification of what his name already was. You know, not only will he be the father of the Jewish nation, but what does the New Testament say? What's the New Testament say about Abraham and about you? Any, anybody who, who comes to faith in Jesus Christ is a son of Abraham, right? Because as Paul makes clear to the Galatians and also to the Romans, God's not just talking about bloodline. God's talking about circumcision of the heart, faith in Christ. So if you're a Christian, you're a son or a daughter of Abraham. God changed his name. God gave him a new identity. When you came to faith in Christ, did God give you a new identity? You better believe it. In fact, the Bible says you have a name. You read over in Revelation, you've got a name what? Does anybody remember what Revelation says? No? You've 
you've got a name, in fact, known only to God. You've got a name known, known only to God. Book of Revelation says so. But God gives you a new identity when you come to faith in Him. The, uh, the, the, the book of Ephesians says we, we become joint heirs together with Christ. We're no longer uh, destitute, no longer aliens, no longer strangers from the promises. But we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. New identity. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were a child of wrath. Folks, all you had to do to be a child of wrath was to, was, to, was to be what? To be born. Child of wrath. But through Christ, forgiven, new name, new standing before God, new identity. In verses 9 to 14, God gave Abraham also a sign of the covenant. He states it very clearly in verse 10. What's the sign of the covenant? Circumcision. Now folks, I want you to understand what's happening here. Previously, through his flesh, what did Abram try to do? He tried to force God's hand. Sarai gave Hagar, her maid, to Abraham. Their thought was that maybe Sarai's the problem, so Abram can have a son through Hagar. It was their substitute plan for God's plan. So stay with me here for a minute. Where was their confidence? Where was their confidence? It was in the flesh. If, if I get a new wife, Hagar, I can have a son. Their confidence was in the flesh, what he could do. But circumcision would be a visual reminder to Abraham for the rest of his life that God was cutting away at the very part of him that where previously their confidence was. In their reproductive area. His faith, his confidence was in his own powers to reproduce, to bring about a son. And so in circumcision, God was going to kill off part of his flesh to show Abraham it's not by the power of the human flesh, it's by God's promise that he'll have a son. Circumcision would be painful, it would involve bloodshed, and it would be a permanent Reminder: As long as Abraham lived, he and his descendants, circumcision would be an ongoing reminder this time in their very own bodies that when it came to God's promises, we are to reckon the human flesh and human abilities as dead 
And instead, we are to trust the Word of God and the promises of God alone. That's what it would be an ongoing reminder of. That this is God's doing. It's not Abraham's doing. And circumcision was going to be an ongoing reminder of that. Now ladies, you'll notice also that Sarai's name was changed to what? Sarah. And so she would have a reminder too, a name change. At 90 years of age, what sign was she going to get in her flesh? A baby. Thank you, Ned. I tell you what, he walks in late and he still got the right answer. Y'all just sitting there kind of looking. Thank you, Ned. At 90 years of age, she's carrying a child in her womb. Name change and a sign in her flesh. A 90-year-old woman having a baby. Here's something else I want want you to to not miss tonight. When When you talk about the change in Abraham and Sarah, you need to remember not only are you given a new name, but you're to be different too. Right? John writes in 1 John, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we shall be called children of God. We have a new name. We're to display a new character. And as new people, sons and daughters of Christ, we are to display a new character. A new life. We're not to conform to this world. We are to gird up the loins of our mind and be holy, as Peter says. Girding up your loins was something they would do. They would gather up that robe as a sign of freeing their legs. They were prepared for work or for action. And so the New Testament says you and I are to gird up the loins of our mind. We are to be prepared To live as servants of Christ in a dark world. You see folks, they were circumcised, but we're circumcised as well. But the New Testament emphasizes a different kind of circumcision. A circumcision of what? Of the heart. Of the heart. Romans uh, chapter 2, 28 and 29 says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit and not by the letter, and his praise is not from men but from God. Now you see, that's where the Jews mess things up, right? They took circumcision to be a sign in the flesh only, right? Because of that, by the first century, the rabbis held that all a man had to do in order to go to heaven 
was be circumcised in his flesh. The rabbis, by the time of Jesus, were teaching. All you got to do, be circumcised in the flesh. They missed the point. They turned it into an outward ritual. But now, folks, we do stuff like that today too, don't we? There are religious observances we carry out today, and we, we put our confidence in those. There are people today that think, all I've got to do to go to heaven is what? Be baptized. We've got churches around us. One of the, one of the most popular churches here in Concord one of, the, one of the biggest, most popular churches between us and Northeast Hospital. I'm not talking about First Assembly. not talking about them at all. Another very popular church in Concord. Baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration says what? You got to be, be baptized in order. Water baptism in order. To be saved. You know what I want to say to congregations like that? I want to say, have you not read the book of Galatians? Because they've turned baptism essentially into what they were making, circumcision. And Paul said to the Galatians, you keep going down that, that pathway and Christ will be of none effect for you. There are people that think church membership will save them. There are people that think if I belong to this denomination versus that, I'll be right with God. So we've got our own little versions of confidence in the flesh, don't we? Things that we do. If we place our confidence in things of the flesh instead of in Christ, we are no different than those in the Bible who were placing their confidence in outward circum- circumcision, thinking that they would be saved. George Whitfield was a famous open air evangelist who was used mightily of God in, in the Great awakenings in this country. In one of his sermons, he tells of a dream that he had where an angel transported him to the gates of hell. And when he arrived, he cried out to the gatekeeper, Have you any Methodist in hell? Oh yeah, we got lots of those down here. Have you any Lutherans in hell? Oh yeah, I got lots of those too. Any Presbyterians? Yes. Catholics? Yes. Got any Baptists? Oh, yes. Suddenly he found himself transported to the gates of heaven. And he asked Simon Peter, Have you any Methodists up here? No. Any Presbyterians? No. Lutherans? No. You got some Baptists in heaven, right? No. Then who in the world do you have in heaven? Christians. Christians. 
You see, no human work, no denomination, nothing, no confidence in the flesh is going to be what saves you. Well, what does this Old Testament symbol say to us today? Circumcision, since it doesn't apply the way it did in the Old Covenant. How does it apply? Sin and earth, no confidence in the flesh. No, con- there is nothing in my flesh that gives me my standing before God. Circumcision in the New Covenant, circumcision of the heart, tells us what? That we are spiritually bankrupt. No confidence in the flesh. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. What we're to do is look to Christ, crucified on the cross, Him alone are we to look for salvation. Christ alone. Christ alone. Oh, preacher, don't I help God out something, though? Salvation is not me plus Jesus. Salvation is Jesus. If you you add anything to Christ, anything, you destroy grace. Again, that's what Paul said to the Galatians. Add anything to Christ and you destroy grace. See, we think, oh, I just, I add something to Christ and the whole... It becomes a richer stew. No. It makes Christ of none effect for you. Adding anything to Christ doesn't mean you end up with addition something richer. It means subtraction. That you've lost sight of grace. That's, that's what circumcision teaches us today in the New Covenant. No confidence in the flesh. Well, I want you to understand today that God does make promises to His children. And He's able to bring those promises to pass. He's El. Shaddai. El Shaddai. The God who can bring it to pass. Do you know El Shaddai? You can trust Him. He keeps His word. 
and he brings to pass what he says. If you've been made new in Christ, let him, let him change you the way he wants. He, he gives you a new character. A new name, a new character, a new identity, a new life. I think the Apostle Paul is a great example of that. Remember, remember those disciples at Damascus? When Paul was first saved, they didn't want anything to do with him, did they? And who was it? Barnabas said, oh no, he's new now. He's a new, he's not the same person anymore. He's got a new identity. And look at what God did in his life. God did wondrous things in him. The one who at one time in his life put confidence in the flesh. But remember what he said to the Philippians? What I once trusted in, what do I do with all that now? I count it as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Maybe I'm speaking to somebody here tonight that you're still trusting in in the flesh, in your powers, in your ability to get to heaven. If that's the case, you're lost and you need to come to Christ, trusting Him and Him alone.